As we uh, begin to unpack this, we know we've moved our way through the book of Acts and now the church has been functioning for well over a decade. There had been an extreme breakout of persecutions and trials in the days of the martyrdom of Stephen. Following that, as Saul himself sort of spearheaded the attack against the church. Now this had been, from our understanding, uh, ebbed and flowed at different seasons in the time of the early church. Here is a time where again the persecution is on the rise. And as, we, as I've read that, there are certain things in there that will cause our minds to begin to spin and question and wonder. And I want us to, before we even unpack some things, to just focus on, on the mysteries of God's providence. It's too easy for us and potentially dangerous for us to say, I know why God did this. I know exactly what God is doing. Because I want to remind you of this. You are not God. And His ways are not your ways. And His thoughts are not your thoughts, says the Lord. We know this very clearly, and I want us to understand this. When we come to this passage, there are two apostles who are arrested. One of those apostles, as he's arrested, is killed. One of those apostles is miraculously delivered. Now let me ask you the wrong question. Which one of those apostles did Jesus love? Do you understand why it's the wrong question? Yeah. We tend to think, oh, how love, how much love he had for Peter because he delivered Peter. But what we don't understand is we ought not presume on the secret purposes of God. When I actually look at the word of God and when Paul speaking of his own life and the likelihood that he will sometimes coming to the me to and to die is gain was delivered from out wasting away gained more at the end of their imprisonment. As we start to think, it's a different perspective. And I want us to begin to see this. The prerogative is God's. Also, one of the dangers that we might tend to think is this. Well, God took James but left Peter because Peter was more useful. Peter was more gifted. Peter was more earnest. And I say, nonsense. We, we come up with all of the ideas. Whatever God is pleased to do in this world, he is not dependent on the skills of men. The abilities of men. The earnestness of men. Indeed, he in his grace takes a man's heart. And by the power of the Spirit fills it with greater zeal and earnestness. Doesn't he? 
He can take a man who, who is hesitant and fearful and doubts his ability to communicate and use that man as a mighty communicator, doesn't he? God does not need what we might think of as the master builder. And, and a man is limited maybe to some degree by the tools he has available. God is not so limited. God is able to bring and accomplish all that he desires and indeed does. And so I want to lay this as a background. Remember these verses. I'm going to read a lot of verses today. Because I want us to just hear the word of God and say, oh, what a great God is ours. In Psalm 115, verse 3, God's word says, our God is in heaven. He does all that pleases him. That's a very important thing to recognize. He does what? All that pleases him. Now there's a lot that happens in the world that doesn't please me. But I'm not important. I'm tempted to say the same thing of you, but you might be offended, but think about it. Ultimately, God is the one that really matters. Everything he created, everything is his. It is all designed to the praise of his glory and the manifestation of his power and his being. Psalm chapter 135 verse 6 goes just a step further than Psalm 115 did. It says this, Psalm 135, 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven, on the earth, in the seas, and in all the deeps. So even though supposedly our seafaring individuals continue to speak of there being certain depths to the sea that have degrees of darkness and depth with such pressure that we haven't even yet explored all the full depths of the deeps. Man not only doesn't have uh, exercising uh, awareness and dominion of those things, but even beyond man's reach and experience below. Beyond man's reach and experience above. Nothing is beyond the reach of God. And note this, not only is nothing beyond the reach of God, nothing is happening outside of the sovereign will of God. Of God. I mean think about that. The scripture tells us. Words such as this. That are hard for us to understand. Well I know some things that have happened. That surely God would not have been pleased with. Well God permits many things. That, that displease him. Because he was pleased to allow that. That he might make known his holiness. And his justice. Among those things. He allowed his own beloved and righteous son to suffer at the hands of sinful men. Didn't he? Scripture tells us this in Isaiah 53 verse 10. Now the ESV renders it like this. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when his soul is made an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. 
But the King James here actually renders it more literally. It is the will of God, but it's his will because it's his good pleasure. It says here, it pleased the Lord to crush him. Now, and we think, how can that be? And it's okay if you keep saying, how can that be? And your mind can't figure it out. Because we are but men. He is God. I want to remind you of some verses that I would urge you to read with regularity. And indeed, maybe even commit to memory. So that you can recall it at any point. In Romans chapter 11. Verse 33, God's word says this. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. When we talk about the depth of the wisdom and riches and knowledge of God, there, there's no point of even mentioning comparison between men's knowledge and God. In comparison, though we may not commonly word use these words in our homes, man is but stupid compared to God in the fullness of his knowledge. And I know that's strong, but I, I, I often will even give this comparison. Compare the intelligence level of an ant to you. Or a chicken to you. Or whatever it may be. You're going to probably win a general knowledge competition. Right? Yeah, the answer, answer why. He can't even speak. He can't understand the thing. I want to tell you this, and I, and I hope make you strong and comfortable. The divide between an ant knowledge and yours. Knowledge and smaller than the divide between God's. Can we ever accuse God of wrong? There was once when Peter thought he would take Jesus aside and explain to him in a rebuke that he messed up. And what did Peter find out, not only in that moment, as he says, get behind me, Satan, but what does he find out all along? The only person that keeps messing up is Peter. <laughs> Never Jesus. Likewise, the only person and people who keep getting it wrong... Is us. And who always gets it right. Is God. The, it says. The depths and riches of his wisdom. Uh, and knowledge of God. Still in verse 33. How unsearchable. Are his judgments. And inscrutable. Are his ways. The NIV there renders it. Beyond tracing out. Unsearchable. And inscrutable. And then someone comes along and says. Oh I got it. I get it. Well, no, not necessarily. Now, when he reveals it, then we, when he says, I did this in order that this, and we, then we can say, oh, I get it. Because he said it. But beyond that, when we claim to have figured out his practical providence on our own, we're in danger. 
He goes on to say this, For who has known the mind of the Lord? That is a rhetorical question. It's a question, ends with the question to which there is supposed to be an, an answer responded. Who has known the mind of the Lord? And all of God's people should say, no one. And who has been his counselor? No one. Because no one is fit to be his counselor. And no one understands the full scope of his mind. And who has given him a gift? That he should be repaid. No one. No, thank you. Only one or two of you are, are actually doing the participation. I guess it, it, it breaks your normal culture. But let's break it. Uh, the, the, the fact is. We got to understand this. Who has given to him a gift that should be repaid? Did Peter somehow deserve the deliverance from prison? But James didn't. No, and we, we all along will look at people's lives and say, uh, prosperous and successful, God must be with them. They're having trouble in, in things. They must be doing something wrong. And, and we begin to pass our judgments, don't we? And if, if not we here, we're aware that this happens nonetheless, right? And it says this, for from him and through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen? That's, I mean, so everything is from him, through him, and for him. So are you saying it's all about God? Yes! He's the one who has created it. He has established it. And it is all designed for him. Well, what about us? Those of us, Isaiah said, who are called by his name are called for the praise of his glory. So even the privileges that are afforded to us are still ultimately for him in its ultimate design. Now, I want us to get this because sometimes I think our minds just... Go astray. Jesus says, says these words in, in a way that's to, to attack the, the, the confusing notions that the Pharisees and Sadducees would have. He says in Luke 4 verse 25 and following this. He says, in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in the days of Elijah. When the heavens were shut for three years and six months in a great famine over all the earth. Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath. The land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. There were so many widows, but this widow is the one he went to. Was she more needy than other widows? Was she more righteous than other widows? And your answer has to be, I don't know, first of all, because we don't have many details about her. And second of all, doubtful, because does the grace of God only come to those who are most deserving? That sentence doesn't even work because the whole it's not grace if it's to those who are deserving. <laughs> right. And Jesus goes on and says, look, there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha and none of them was cleansed, but only name and the Syrian. Basically, he's beginning to say this. God does what he wants, where he wants, when he wants. How he wants. To who he wants. 
And if you don't like it, what are you going to do about it? I mean, you, 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 there's nothing you can or should do. And now, hearing that, did they like it? Because the two examples Jesus used, they weren't even Jews. How dare you speak of God's unique mercy and benefits being given to someone who was not among us, among the worthy, among the... That's the way it is. And how did they respond when Jesus says this to them? Verse 28. When they heard these things. All the synagogue was filled with wrath. I mean, that's quite a sermon. <laughs> when he's done with his message. There's not a hallelujah in the house. I mean, every single person is against the message that he preached. But what's funny is. Did Jesus say anything that was not actually historically and biblically factual? I mean, that's all. The, he simply declared a historic and biblical fact. And that did not fit with how they want to think about God. I like to think about God different than that. My God is. What do you mean my God is? Don't, 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 don't try to somehow separate your God from the God. There is one God, and oh, that your God would be God. Don't give a personal definition for your personal works. I, mean, I think when uh, this, again, they rose, drove him out of town, and they brought him going to throw him off the hill, but then he passed through their midst. I think, wow. They wanted, their plan was to some degree, but maybe to some degree that does not happen because willing to say it as it is. They tell people what they want to hear. Uh, uh, the mysteries of God, he has all prerogative to do what he wants his way. I, uh, just by reminder, many of you will be aware that in 2 Kings chapter 20, you may not know the reference immediately, but Hezekiah has become sick and the prophet has come to him and says, you're going to die. And he asked that to, to, he prays and he asked that prayer would be made for him. And God says to him, 15 more years will be added to your life. A man was about to die. Prayer was made and 15 years added to his life. Amen? The power of God manifested. But is the power of God somehow weak when prayers are made and death still happens? Because in 2 Samuel chapter 12, David has a son who is sick. And he is praying with earnestness and fasting at levels maybe you and I have yet to appropriate. And yet what happened? The child died. And you think, wait a second. The child didn't even uh, do things wrong as yet. If anyone deserved 15 years, it wasn't Hezekiah who had shown pride. It would have been the baby who deserved 15 years. So how about you and I counsel God that 15 years ought to be given to the baby and not given to Hezekiah? 
I mean, that's our logic, right? And, and I identify with that because we're humans and we, we have a, a, an intimate experience with struggles and needs and we by nature judge one another and assess values, rightly or wrongly. We do this, don't we? And so we might tend to say, uh, mistake was made. But I ask you, was a mistake made? Well, when God made Saul the king and he proved to be unfaithful, what did God do when Saul was unfaithful? He said to him through Samuel, the, the kingdom has been torn from you and given to another. And once David became king, he was never unfaithful. Right? He never committed adultery or murdered anybody, for example. Did he? He said, wait a second. Yes, he did. So did David prove in some sense to be just as and even potentially more undeserving than was Saul? Well, why did God mercifully allow one to continue as king and not the other? Give an abiding promise that there will always be one of his descendants, which would be ultimately fulfilled in Christ, to sit on his throne, but did not give that to Saul. Why, 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 why? Right? And here's the answer. Because it pleased him. Because it was his will. But I don't understand. Good. Because his ways are unsearchable inscrutable beyond finding out the scripture reminds us in Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 14 these beautiful words he says behold to the Lord your God belong the heaven and the heaven of heavens the earth and all that is in it and get it he absolutely owns everything and by not understanding that people think be, think he owes us something but who's given him a gift that he should be repaid well, what about what about our labor and our earnestness remember what jesus gives that example in matthew chapter 20 a man goes in the early morning hours and he calls men out to work in his field begins at about the sixth hour. Three hours later, he goes again and calls more men to work in his field. Three hours later, again, he calls more men to work in his field. Two hours later, with just an hour left in the day, he calls more men to work in the field. Then when it comes time to pay them, what did the master do? He gave those who had worked the whole day what he had agreed to give them. Is that not fair? Is that not right? Is that not just? Can he take them to court? Well, that's what they agreed for. Now, the people who, who had come three hours later, three hours later, six hours later, uh, all the way to one hour before finishing, he gave them the same amount. So now those who worked all day felt like what? Hold on a second here. If you're giving them that much for an hour... And I put in this many hours. You owe us. Uh, what is that? How it works? No, no, no. He doesn't. He owes you what you deserve, and what you deserve is this amount. 
Now, just saying this in, in the most gracious way, if we convert it to spiritual things, nobody really wants what they deserve. Because what does all man deserve? Because of the fall of Adam, condemnation is passed upon all men. Remember, for those who do not believe in God, the wrath of God remains or abides on you. So th that's the standard of what men deserve. All our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. Nobody actually wants what they deserve. But they want the best. And Jesus says these simple words. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what? belongs to me. I, mean, I think it'd be really helpful if we understood that. All right. Is God not allowed to do what he wants with what belongs to him? And we say, yes. I mean, if, if somebody has a diamond that they want to throw in the trash can, but a rotten apple want to take Thing evil was there if they keeps worthless. All right, well, go ahead and let them do that. But see, with God, he has a right to do whatever he wants with what belongs to him. Back to the previous verse, what belongs to him? Everything but, is there anything after that? No, there's not. Everything and absolutely everything belongs to him. Now, the confusion comes in so many ways. For example, um, Probably you're familiar with, it, with John 9. There was a man, it mentions in John 9, who was born blind. And so what is the way? We don't realize that God's ways are unsearchable and unfathomable. And so we figure, here's what happened. Even the disciples figured, here's what happened. Why was this man born blind? Either he sinned. Which it's interesting that they said, did he sin what? In utero? What's happening here? Um, or did his parents sin? That's, that's the assumption. These are, these are the only two options, Jesus. So, no, the, the, <laughs> you've missed it. The two options aren't, did this person sin or did this person not sin? The real question is, is how has God designed to bring himself glory in this? Because that's what Jesus' words are in John chapter 9. He says, neither. This, this man was born blind in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. And you just think, what? Now, someone might also say this. He was born blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So this poor man had to spend his whole life in blindness, not able to do what others do, enjoy what others enjoy. He struggled and had all of these practical challenges and limitations just so that God could somehow be glorified in it. Come on. Doesn't seem right. Well, 
That's because what? Does God owe us sight? No. And there is a real sense in which we're all born blind. Spiritually. <laughs> and if it's not for the grace of God indeed. If it's not that for God desiring to make known and display his might in us. We would all remain in blindness and darkness and hopelessness. But then he has opened our eyes to see the glory of Christ in the face of the gospel. And in that we rejoice. Right? But just to, just to get these things clear in our mind. When Peter towards the end is walking with Jesus in John 21. Jesus had just told him in verse 19 that he was going to die. That he was going to, in the process of time, stretch out his hands and die in a very miserable ma manner. And I love the way that it's stated in verse 19. So go back to it if you would. John 21, 19. This was to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. So don't, don't miss that. So when it says that Herod arrested James and put James to death by the sword... That was how God had gloriously designed that James would glorify God. So that's not a rejection of James. That's not a judgment of James. James had finished the race that was set before him. He had hit that finish line. And he hit it first. And he hit it sooner than any of the other apostles. So if anything, you might think he won the race. Right? The guy who gets to the finish line first wins. Right? Well, again, he, he says this, and he says, after that he said to him, follow me. Peter came, and he's walking with Jesus. He turns and sees that John is also following. And he says, um, verse 21, when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Maybe he's particularly disturbed about how he's going to suffer and die to glorify God in his death. He's like, what about this guy? I hope everybody's going to suffer like this. Well, now note this. It was James and John who had come to the Lord and said, grant us to sit at your right and left side. And he said to them, listen, can you drink the cup of suffering that I'm going to drink? Can you be baptized with the baptism of pain that I'm going to be baptized with? And what did they say? Yeah, we were able <laughs> Well, little did they know, James would be the first to experience that. But to listen to what it says. Um, he says to Peter, uh, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, listen, if it is my will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? Follow me. I think there is so much practical import to that statement. Well, what's, what about this man? What about that man? God, uh, what, about, what about this guy who seems to be so rich and blessed? What is that to you? Follow me. What, what about this person who seems to have suffered so much greater loss than me? What is that to you? Follow me. Whether, whether, whether we see others in a position where we would have jealousy and envy... Or whether we think we're in the position that others will look at us with jealousy. What is that? That itself is nothing. The priority has to be in all of God's 
perplexing and mysterious providences, follow him. But why? You may not be able to answer why, but you should be able to answer this question. What would he have you do? We spend so much time and energy trying to answer the mysterious question, why God? Why oh why? When we have the clear answers to the question, what? What would, how should we live to honor him? And he tells us how to live with integrity and purity and mercy and compassion and boldness. Right? We live with purity and earnestness. And a lot of that is captured in the ideas of love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Above all else. That will lead to a lot of self-sacrifice and self-denial. And love your neighbor. Oh, so much is there in the scriptures. If it is my will that they that to you if it is what is it to you i'm just going to follow and follow faithfully in jeremiah chapter 21 it says this verse 2 inquire of the lord for us this is a king zedekiah for nebuchadnezzar king of babylon is making war against us the Lord will deal with us according to all his wonderful deeds and make them withdraw from us. So here's, the, here's sometimes even the thought that might captivate the Old Testament mind. We want God to work for us. So let's flatter him a bit. Let's tell him how, we are, how impressed we are, how much we believe in his ability, how much we believe in his power. I mean, if we say, God, this powerful king... Yeah, what can we do? But, oh God, your deeds are wonderful. And surely you can. Then, he'll kind of be caught. And he'll have to deliver us, right? Wrong. God does not have to do anything. And in this case, the statement was true. God had done and, uh, wonderful deeds and miraculously delivered them many times. But in this occasion, under Nebuchadnezzar, the answer, regardless of flattery, regardless of sacrifice, regardless of prayer, the answer was, no. It is my will for you to all go into exile. But, yeah, go ahead, keep doing that. But my plan is fixed. It's done. Whereas what's interesting is, um, even sometimes we get it totally wrong. In 2 Samuel chapter 10, Joab, the king... Uh, uh, the king's general is coming out and his brother Abishai and they and they go out to battle and they look and suddenly it's a problem because two armies have come against them from opposite sides and that's not a good thing and so they're thinking oh no if we could all fight them maybe we'd win or if we could all fight them maybe we'd win what are we going to do now and it says in that passage uh, verse 11 of 2 Samuel 10 Joab says to his brother, if the Syrians are too strong for me, you come and help me. And if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. You know what he's not also thought about? But what happens if kind of they're too strong for me and they're too strong for you? Uh, then who's going to help whose? 
You know, but he's trying to be positive. If, if I'm in need, you come help. If you're in need, I'll come help. And then he says this statement. Be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good in his eyes. And you know what God did? None of the things that Joab predicted. Now, Joab did not predict worst case scenario. We're both losing. You know what he also did not predict? That God was going to give them victory on both sides. One of the reasons why it's, it seems likely that Joab didn't predict that is because it's a divided army outnumbered. So he assumes one of us is going to be in need. But what was the answer that day? Nah. They both routed their enemies. So, so perhaps God will do this. Perhaps God will do that. Yes, we live in a world of perhaps and uncertainty as we don't know what God will do. Yet, though we say perhaps from our side with full confidence we can know this. God will do what is right and pleasing in his eyes. And ultimately, isn't that what we want anyways? Even Jesus for the path set before him. We know that the path to the cross was one of great pain. One that he in his incarnation did not look forward to that agony with, with joyful delight. He pleads in the garden of Gethsemane, doesn't he? Father, let this cup pass from me. He's, he's, he's not wanting to bear all of the agony that's awaiting for him. But what does he say? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And that, that's what we've got to understand in every circumstance. Though things go bad, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. In this particular section, we have James, the first apostle to die. He gets arrested. He gets, it says, killed by the sword, which the most likely means of execution in those days. They had two primary means of execution uh, when, when a prisoner was arrested, and that was by means of beheading or means of crucifixion. Crucifixion was reserved for the most vile of criminals. Beheading was considered a much more merciful approach. Now, that's, we, our, our, our hearts rile a bit when we say it was for the most vile because they dared do that to he who was without sin. But he bore that for those who are most vile. For us. Who, who, who deserve not only the worst that Rome could give, but the wrath that would pour forth from a righteous God. But so it is likely when it says killed him with the sword that that's that means the beheading. And that's what the tradition seems to say that James was beheaded. And again, I, I, I noted last week this simple thing, and I'll remind you of this again regarding the ministry of James. We have here. This is 44 A.D. when he's being killed. And we know the church was established times round about 30 to 33 A.D. So we have more than 10 years of ministry. What did James do? Where did he go? What did he accomplish? 
And this is an appropriate time that I am met with silence because the scripture does not say. But here's the beauty. What he did is known to the Lord. You know, we don't. And the rest of what is recorded in the book of Acts, recorded the details of, uh, of the ministry of Paul and certain details of Apollos and certain details of the ministry of Peter, they're not recorded that we might put and on pedestals. They're not recorded that we might divide and, and, and into our, our favorite leaders and our favorite teachers as was taking place in Corinth, right? They're shown that we might see the unfolding hand and unfolding purposes of God in the church and in the lives of his people. And so we see all of these things happening and we begin to understand the power of God. The scripture reminds us of certain things that we know very well. It says in Ephesians 1.11, In him we have obtained an inheritance that having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his will. Right? And further, it says, does a bird fall, in, in Amos chapter 3, verse 5 and 6, does a bird fall in a snare to the earth when there's no trap set for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when there is nothing to take it? Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a, uh, to a city unless the Lord has done it? The constant reminder that God is in control of everything. So don't think for a moment, oh no, things are going bad in my life. The devil must be in control. Somehow God must. No, no, no. God has not lost control. Bad things happened in Paul's life. And he didn't judge that it was necessarily because of sin. He spoke of a time where he was despairing of life itself. So that we might depend on him. Who gives life and not on ourselves. So God sometimes allows the difficult paths of this life. To keep our hearts humble. And dependent upon him. And though it may be hard now. I mean easy while sitting here to say amen. But in the midst of the hardness. A little harder to say amen. When these days are done. And we find our final deliverance. And we understand that we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. We will be able to say amen. With full heartedness right now there's still oft going to be a part of us that's going to say god why you let this happen god why did i have to go through this i know romans 8 28 you work all things together for good to those who love you those are called according to your purpose i know you work all things together for good but i don't see how i don't see it but what's the answer yeah you don't see it but he does you don't know the design, but he does. Deuteronomy 27, 27, the secret things belong to God, but the revealed things belong to us. Let us commit ourselves to the things that are revealed. My mind's now saying 29, 29, so I'm not sure. 29, 29. All right. And so just by way of this, that's why I said part one, we're going to take up part two, because I want, I want you to see this. Um, next week as we take this up, we're going to see that, well, the, the power of God, one is killed, another is delivered. 
we see the saints gathered together in earnest prayer. And that God is pleased to incline himself to their prayer and answer with a powerful deliverance. Where Peter, who's in prison with four, uh, four basically 16 guards appointed to him. God miraculously delivers him by automatic opening doors. Powerfully delivered from that captivity on the night in which he was going to be brought out. Just amazing, the power of God. But I just, in closing today, want to remind you of this. We sometimes think, what a powerful deliverance. The sleep that is put on them, even though the light of this angel shone, these men stayed sleeping as if dead. Chains are falling to the ground and clanging, still sleeping. Doors are creaking, gates are opening, still sleeping. So that when they're called the next day, they don't even know what to say. They have no idea what happened. And we think, power, that, they, that this man was delivered from prison. And the scriptures reminds us that all are by nature captives, imprisoned to sin. And there is a sense that as long as we're in these bodies of flesh, we're still subject to the war, the, the, the battle of the flesh that wages war within us, aren't we? So there's a part of me that even looks at that and says, oh, the power of the deliverance of Peter from prison. But oh, the power of the deliverance of James from temptation, from weakness, from compromise, from the presence of sin being practiced into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. I ask you, what, what power in both of those deaths and deliverances in imprisonment? Amen. All right, we'll take this up again next week. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, there is none like you. Lord, you raise the poor and needy up from the ash heap. You sit men on the thrones of princes and kings. You take those who are kings and push them down and make them prisoners. God, you are the one who establishes the nations. And the nations, they, they mock in vain. And you hold them in derision. Knowing that your power holds absolute sway. Lord and we thank you for that confidence that we have. And we recognize that you are the one who leads us. As we go on our way you hem us in before and behind. And your hand is upon us. And we are so thankful for that confidence. What a great and glorious God we have. And we give you all praise and glory and honor. In Jesus name. Amen.